If you'd like to keep your Bibles open, that would be helpful. But uh, keep them open in the Luke passage. That's where we're going to spend pretty much all of our time. This might seem like a better service to ask this question. The 8.30 service, mostly retired people, I asked it. And most of them would say, as little as possible, probably none, because I've got no earning capacity except for my, in- my, my investments. Here's the question. How much debt do you have? Your home debt, your car debt, your credit card debt, maybe even family loans. Now, you might be feeling now a bit overwhelmed. Um, I don't know what the average is for Australia, but we've all got it, apparently. How would you feel if someone came up to you and said, how about I pay all of your debt? Just someone out of the blue, hadn't met before, someone you owe nothing, someone who owes you nothing. What would that feel like? I think it would be pretty good, probably. Haven't experienced yet, yet, and it's not a suggestion for anyone. Um, But I think my biggest problem, if you did that for me, is that I would think that because I'm a Western materialist, I can just go and increase some more debt back to the level I had before. That will give me the opportunity to get more stuff. Well, imagine what you'd be feeling like as a country if you'd been caught by one of those other countries that feels like they're doing you a good turn and crippled with debt at rates you couldn't pay and everything you worked for as a country was just repaying the loan that a previous government had taken. Imagine how you would feel as a country if someone decided just to cancel that debt completely. Wouldn't that be good? Well, you might be wondering where the heck is Rick going because I didn't see anything about money, credit cards and debt in that. Luke's Gospel, we see that Jesus forgives debt. And I'm not talking about your credit card debt. We will see that because of who Jesus is, what we do with Jesus matters. It was something that we saw last week. We're going to be challenged as we look at this passage because we can be like Simon the Pharisee and compare sin. We're going to see that if we really understand our sin and what Jesus has done with it, that should transform the way that we love. How about I pray? Our Lord and our God, as we get to your word this morning, uh, maybe a familiar passage, we pray that I'll be clear and we pray that you will help our hearts and our minds not to be distracted. We pray that your spirit will work in our lives as your word is brought to bear fruit in our lives. We pray, Lord God, that in your grace, this will not just be a habit that we go through. We pray that your word will speak to us and transform us as individuals and as a church. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. 
You will need to be in Luke's Gospel 1, page 1573, Luke chapter five, chapter 7, sorry, verse 36 to 50. Um, uh, that was 1573 if you've got the Bibles that happen to be near your seats that are left here. Last week, we saw that Jesus pointed out that what we do with him really matters and he didn't use those words. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 23, he says... Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John the Baptist has just been wondering if Jesus really is who he claims to be. Does the Messiah fit their expectations? Well, we see clearly that John the Baptist thinks that Jesus does not fit his expectations. We talked about that last week. Um, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus specifically says last week, Uh, that they really don't care about God's purposes, so they're not even asking that question. They have rejected John, and so far, as Jesus is, uh, Luke is describing in Luke chapter 7, uh, they have rejected Jesus as well. But now we find ourselves that Jesus is then invited into the house of a Pharisee. Maybe Simon the Pharisee is nicer than the rest of them. He's actually one of the few Pharisees we get to know his name. Is Simon being nice towards Jesus? Is he interested in the plans and purposes of God? Well, we find out very quickly that that does not seem to be the case. And we find out that Simon has not extended to Jesus any of the common courtesies that you would extend towards a guest at your place. And everyone sees this. Eating's a public thing. If I invite you to my place for lunch today... Not better not do that, Danielle doesn't know about it. Um, uh, if I was to invite you to my place for lunch today, we would let you in the front door and close the front door so that the rest of your friends could... No, 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 so no one else could get in. But in Jesus' time, when you ate and reclined at the table, it was common for those in the community to come in, especially when you've got a prominent person there. And so they're round the table, not eating at the table, but round those eating at the table would have been people who had come to hear the conversation and to meet Jesus. Now, if you're an astute reader of God's word, you might be thinking that this is not the first time that Jesus gets perfume poured on him. In fact, well, it may, it's not... It's actually recorded very differently to the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels have a lady turning up at a different time, pouring expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus for a different reason at a different house. You see, the other Gospels record another event uh, near the end of Jesus' ministry, just before his death. Uh, It happened at the house of Simon the leper and we note here this is Simon the Pharisee. Now Simon was a very common name so it's not unusual there's two blokes named Simon around Jesus' time and it's a different woman who does the pouring. So Luke is not twisting the story that the other three guys record, he's just recording another event. That's probably worthwhile thinking through if you're an astute reader. Let's get back to the passage though, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Jesus is reclined at the the table, Simon the Pharisee having dinner, and behold, a woman shows up, and that's meant to sound surprising. And we are told that this behold, a woman shows up, has lived a very sinful life, 
and she's found out that Jesus is at Simon's place because everyone else knew in the village and so she comes and brings an alabaster jar of perfume and it's not that cheap Channel 5 stuff. In Simon's culture and in Simon's part of living, what she then does is deeply shameful. She wets the feet of Jesus with her tears. I've never tried to wet someone's feet with my tears. You'd have to cry a lot, wouldn't you? You'd have to be deeply struck to the core. And then she lets down her hair. That's deeply shameful. I've never had much hair to let down. Or I do let it down, actually. It just goes all the way to the ground and stays there. And she dries Jesus' feet and then she pours the expensive stuff on his feet. And Simon is sitting there thinking, there you go, I know that Jesus is not a prophet because if he was a prophet, he would have pushed her away. If he was a prophet, he would know so what a, such a sinful person she really is. Now, let me tell you, there's lots of people that would like to speculate on what sin that she was doing. Isn't it funny how we like the goss? People think she was a prostitute. Now, we're not told. Did you notice that? doesn't say at all. That's really important. So don't speculate. Here's my speculation. I think she was a middle-class businesswoman who's been exploiting people by not paying right wages and giving poor working conditions. I've got as much credibility for my guests as people who think she was a prostitute have. And Simon the Pharisee can be just like us. Or actually, we can be just like him. Very Pharisaic. Because Simon had a very careful rating system that made it helpful for him to know who was the worst sinner at the table. She was a serious sinner. And notice this, Jesus does not critique that. In fact, he accepts that as true. But Simon did not consider himself to be a sinner at all. At least not one as bad as she was. Because Simon thought that if Jesus was a prophet, he would come to his place and have lunch. Because all good, respectable people come to my place for lunch if they are really from God. I don't know whether you've ever had that problem before. Simon certainly had it. But if Jesus was a prophet, he would have not even allowed that terrible sinning woman to touch him. She was a terrible sinner. You see, Simon had a system of rating sin. Um, his rating sin, a system of rating sin, enabled him to be filled with pride and judgmentalism. Um, a little later on in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 18, verse 11, there was a Pharisee, don't get his name this time, not Simon, I'm assuming, um, who could stand in the temple and give thanks to God that he was not a sinner like those robbers and evildoers and adulterers and even that tax collector over there. He was filled with pride and his judgmental system of rating sin enabled him to do that. He was right and good and proper. He was self-secure. Why was he self-secure? Well, God's people would like to associate with me but not with them. God's prophet would come to my house but not allow her to touch him. He was loveless. What do I mean by that? Well, you can give a hoot about her. Did Jesus, do you notice Jesus says, do you see this woman? 
he was good. He was not a bad sinner. In fact, he was pretty much so darn good that God didn't even need to be worried about him. His rating system had meant that he had now had an excuse not to have anything to do with her. So he didn't get tainted by guilt of association, even at a meal. And she's not eating. Now, we can be just like Simon the Pharisee, might I say. We can be judgmental. We can be self-secure. We can be loveless. And we can think that's a reason to separate ourselves from those that are not as bad as sinners, sorry, from those that are worse sinners than us. Now, in a moment, we're going to see why it is that this woman came to Jesus and did this. But see, first of all, that Jesus even loves Simon, who we have been told as a Pharisee doesn't give two hoots about the purposes and plans of God. Jesus wants Simon to have every opportunity to change his thinking. Why is it that Jesus is so important in the plans and purposes of God? Because if Jesus, Simon doesn't change, Jesus has said he is not blessed, he has stumbled on account of who Jesus is and, and what he's doing. This is serious stuff. So Simon is sitting there thinking, well, that confirms what I've already known. Jesus is not the prophet because if he was, that woman would not be allowed to touch him and Jesus knows his thoughts. I don't know, we don't get told what happens in the thoughts of Simon at that stage and tells him a parable. Now we read that parable beforehand, so I'm not going to retell it. But note the important things out of the parable. The people owing money owed vastly different amounts, but both actually owed large amounts. 50 denarii, five, pardon me, 500 denarii. Now, a denarii is equivalent to a day's wage, and in a day you'd consume most of your day's wage in your basic living, which means that to pay 50 denarii off, denarii off, it's going to be pretty hard. To pay 500 denarii off is going to be pretty hard. In fact, Jesus says, and this is the second thing to note, both of them found repaying their debt impossible. That is vital. Vital for us to understand. Both people could not repay the debt. And the money lender, Jesus says, forgives them both. And then Jesus asked the question, which is likely to love the money lender the most? And the obvious answer, which Simon reluctantly gives is, well, I suppose it's the one who was forgiven most. Maybe Simon is starting to realise that he, his heart, has been exposed. Maybe not, we're not really told. But Jesus does not allow Simon to then switch off and feel comfortable. Jesus points out that Simon has showed no respect to him, no common courtesy towards him. He's just like the Pharisees of chapter 7, verse 30, that don't give two hoots about the plans and purposes of God. What did the woman do? Well, she knew that she had a problem before God. In fact, as Jesus confirms, she's a 
Well, let's say a good sinner. She's a terrible sinner, if that makes sense. She does sin regularly. And maybe she's reminded of it regularly. Have you ever lived in a fishbowl, a small community? Let's say 500 people. Have you ever lived in a community of 500 people? We lived in a community of less than 100 people. Everyone knew what everyone did, whether you liked it or not. And the policeman, the local policeman, played a game and seen how long it would take a rumour to get back to him. Well, she's probably been reminded of her terrible sin, you know, her exploiting of people in middle-class businesses she ran of their, with their wages and their working conditions. She's reminded of that quite regularly. But regardless of what everyone else thought of her, she comes and embarrasses herself because Jesus has showed her great love. Well, actually, because Jesus has forgiven her. She is overwhelmed with her sin. Jesus has forgiven her and she comes and shows great love towards Jesus. Incredibly humble, incredibly expensive, incredibly humiliating because Jesus has forgiven her lots. And it seems that that this woman has come across Jesus already, doesn't it? She has come with the alabaster jar already in her hand. She could well have already heard the gospel message from Jesus. We're not told that part of the story. We read here of her response to Jesus because of Jesus' forgiveness of her. And that is vital that we understand that. And Luke wants us to know it is vital. He doesn't want us to get it wrong. Verse 47, her sins have been forgiven, therefore she shows great love. Verse 50, her faith has saved her, not her works. Now we get to see why Jesus matters, don't we? The passage ends with people gobsmacked that Jesus would have the audacity to forgive sin. Who is Jesus that he forgives the sins of the people? This has been the guiding problem of people since Genesis chapter 3. And God promised that he would reverse the effects of sin, that the offspring of Adam and Eve would crush the serpent's head. And as you've read through the Old Testament in the last week, you've seen all of the problems that sin has caused. And Jesus has the audacity to stand there and say, I can forgive the sin that only God can forgive. He is the Messiah. That's what Luke wants us to see. He is the one that God has promised. He acts with the power and authority of God. He does the things that only God can do, He forgives sin, the great unrepayable debt that has hung over the head of all humanity, including me and you, whether you're a 50 denarii sinner or a 500 denarii sinner, Jesus can forgive it. Now, do you think Simon is in a better position now to understand who Jesus is? Well, we can say not fully, 
he hasn't witnessed the resurrection but as the penny drops as Jesus continues to live out what it means for God to rescue people Simon the Pharisee will get to see the reality of why Jesus matters but what about us today does this passage have anything to do with what we how we live and uh, how we see Jesus well, I, I do want to ask a question of, or two of us. I think there's three things I'll raise. Do you understand what your sin is like before God? Do you think you're a 50 denarii sinner or a 500 denarii sinner? Because we like to categorise it, don't we? Well, here's the point. It doesn't matter whether you're a one denarii sinner or a five billion denarii sinner, you and I cannot rescue ourselves from our sin. We desperately need Jesus. You see, we sit in church and we need God's grace as much as anyone else on this planet. That might help us to understand how how absolutely vital the gospel message is that we speak it out in a loving way into the lives of all sinners, ourselves included. Sometimes we can feel that we are doing this godliness stuff pretty well and we can feel, like Simon the Pharisee, that our sin is not as bad as someone else's. We can be like Simon and condemn the sins of others but fail to see that we sin. The followers of Jesus often call out the sins of others, don't they? We're renowned for it. And we'll always call out the sins of others that others are doing and not us. Uh, When did you last get condemned in something that you heard from someone else that was addressing greed and materialism and pride and slander and the ones that we are most comfortable with. Well, God knows the heart of me and you the same way and Paul reflects his heart uh, when he writes about the danger that we face. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He's speaking of himself. And you and I might like to fight for the title of worst sinner. But he was a Pharisee, wasn't he? And he understood the depravity of his own sin. So let's not fight for the title of worst of sinners. Let's ask ourselves... When will we last mortified by our sin? Now, that's an old-fashioned word, I believe. Um, uh, When will we last at the point where we were uh, absolutely struck to the core because of our own sin? What about your own recent sin? It's easy to pick that stuff I did 40 years ago. What about your most recent sins? Are you like hit like a brick wall when you realise how that sin impacts your relationship with God? 
See, none of these two sinners could repay their debt. And Simon is thinking, I'm only in for 50 denarii. And Jesus points out, actually, because you think that way, you are not mortified by your sin. You are comfortable with your sin and you don't think you need God. The woman, who lucky enough was a terrible sinner, realises the depth of her own sin and she understands God's undeserved, lavish grace that was poured out on her. She understood how desperately she needed it. There's the first way I think this passage should speak to us. Uh, We should be mortified by our sin and not fall into the trap of thinking we are a 50 denarii sinner, so it's not as bad as that person across the aisle from me who's a 500 denarii sinner. Sorry if that starts fights this afternoon. The second thing I want to raise with us this morning is, is just reflecting on that great grace that you've, you've been shown when we realise how incredibly good God's grace is, how incredibly undeserved God's grace is, how does that change the way that you respond to Jesus? Do you respond in a way that shows that you have been forgiven much? Do you love him lots? What an empty way of putting it in a way because we all think we love Jesus lots. So how does it show? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19... God's word says we love because he first loved us whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar for whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen and he has given us this command anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister that is a very simple thing to do yet it reflects (laughs) and yet it reflects whether or not we really have any credibility in our claim to love God well as we go through Luke's gospel I'm not stealing all the thunder of where we're going but one of the ways we're going to see we love God is because we hear his word and obey it the reading from one John just narrowed it down into how we get on with our brother or sister so this woman whose sin she knew was great understood the greatness of her forgiveness and loved Jesus lots. It cost her economically, didn't it? It cost her socially. Imagine what it would have been like lining up at the IGA store the following week. It cost her relationally. It cost her pride. She was judged by Simon, wasn't she? He didn't even see her repentance. He could just see her sin. It hammered her self-esteem. It cost her her natural desire not to be exposed. But she did not care. She loved Jesus greatly because of his great forgiveness on her. He had offered her something that mattered for eternity and nothing else mattered. Not the judgmental gossip of Simon or his bemused mates, not her status in the community, Real forgiveness was hers, and she knew it. And that's why Jesus matters. Now, is that my story? Is that your story? Do we love Jesus lots because we have been forgiven 
enormously, overwhelmingly, lavishly, graciously. Now, you could be sitting there a bit overwhelmed with your sin. Maybe we all should be. We could feel at this moment like the woman at the feet of Jesus and just holding it together. We don't often come across people in uh, British-influenced Western middle class who are good at showing their emotions, are we? We're emotionally um, stunted. Certainly the blokes in this world are, myself included. And that could be that I've never been allowed to show my emotion or it could simply be that I've never been struck to the core with my sin, with my own depravity. Which one do you find yourself in? Now, that does not mean that I'm going to cry on your feet and wipe your feet with my hair. It would take forever to dry them. And I don't even know where to buy the Channel 5 stuff. Is it? Oh, sorry if you've been wishing that I could pronounce it correctly. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Your sin and my sin might not be publicly known, It certainly hasn't been publicly condemned if I remember reading the Facebook pages of a lot of you. It may be quite publicly acceptable. But are you struck to the core with your own uh, sin? Are you mortified by it? And if you are, know this. Jesus says these words. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn for me, from me, sorry, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. They were not just words that Jesus gave us. That is how he lived. And here it is an example of that, isn't it? Do you understand the great grace that God has extended you? Go in peace. You have been forgiven. And allow God's great grace to to impact your life so that you love Jesus. Now, I just want to ask, add one more thing, just so you can't misunderstand what I'm saying. Uh, Jesus showed great peace, great grace, sorry, He lavished his grace on this sinful woman. He never separated himself from sinners who might taint him. He wasn't concerned that a sinner could touch him. He did not push her aside as Simon had hoped he would. And yet at the same time, Jesus understood that she was a sinner. He spoke about sin. He didn't just label hers. We don't know what her sin was. He he did not condone sin. He loved sinners. He offered grace. He offered forgiveness. And we need to be like Jesus when it comes to that. How about I pray? Our Lord and our God, uh, help us to better understand the depravity of our own sin. Help us to be mortified by it. Now, we find it so easy to be like Simon. 
Lord, help us to grasp that our the debt of our sin is just as unrepayable as the debt of any sin. Thank you for your great grace. Freely lavished on us. We've got a bigger story than Simon had. A bigger story than that woman had. We can see that you have paid the debt of sin and wiped away the guilt of our sin when you died and rose again. We thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence that you've turned aside the Father's wrath. Help us to love like this woman because of the great grace that you have lavished on us.